to that though is that I think the state of sales right now, and the reason this frictionless thing is so important, is because we're not doing this, we're not doing the buyer alignment, we're not like really leading in. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. I got to tell you, I am stoked. I have wanted this guy on the show. I've been looking for a good reason. I didn't, didn't want to waste it on something small. Um, Lou, who heads up the sales product at HubSpot, is joining us today. Lou, why don't you tell everybody uh, who you are, what you do, and how did you end up at HubSpot? Thanks, Doug. I've been waiting for this invite like you wouldn't believe. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Lou. I, I, so I run the, the sales hub at HubSpot. We have these general manager roles, which means kind of the go-to-market and the product strategy and direction for how we think about sales and sales products and CRM at HubSpot. Um, I've been here about a year and a half. I've run sales teams before. I've run product teams, done a bunch of different stuff, but um, none quite like HubSpot and, and the community we built here. So it's, it's been pretty great. So let me ask you the first question. What, what is a marketing automation company like HubSpot doing with a sales product? Uh, it's interesting. Turns out that like marketing and sales teams, getting them to work together is actually kind of important, I think. Um, so we sort you're, of realized that. <laughs> you're kidding, right? That's all. It's weird. it's weird. I don't know. It feels new. You know, the other thing that happened was that uh, I think as we realized that the, the underlying data underneath marketing was sort of CRM data and, and we wanted that to power marketing that data is also sort of powering your sales team and there's unique benefits bringing them together. And so it's kind of natural evolution for HubSpot to think about like the front office, bringing those teams together and leveraging sort of the same underlying platform. Alrighty. Are you hungry? Cause, cause we're going to eat today. <laughs> Did you like how I wove that in? Did you like that? That was I like that. I like that. that was, I, I, I've been working on that one all day today. I haven't done any work in the last four hours. Just, getting that set up. So, so you guys announced it inbound this year, um, kind of bringing everything together um, with, with what you've been doing with, you know, matching strategy methodology to what the product is. And, and you guys are out there talking about the flywheel and force versus friction, et cetera. And um, hence frictionless selling. So, you know, I have some takes on that. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Why don't you um, share what is frictionless selling and why should people listening other than my mom care about it? Cool. I think at the highest level, it's just a way of rethinking sales to make sure that you're doing things that are most convenient for both the buyer and the seller, right? And what underpins that is that we're all just looking for more convenience in everything we do, right? The way that we buy in our personal lives um, does not typically translate to the way that we buy or are sold to um, in our professional lives. And so I think there are some things that um, HubSpot and, and all of us in general are, are pretty uniquely qualified to do um, that are outside of the traditional sales playbook. And the traditional sales playbook, like you mentioned, is a force playbook, right? Most of the thing is about more and more activities, and it doesn't often contemplate like taking away friction, identifying those points. And I think it's, it's a pretty nice opportunity for sales leaders to sort of play the role of friction reducer, um, more so than just like the guy or the woman who's adding force all the time. Interesting. So, um... And I do agree with with everything that you just said with regards to hey, we, in our personal lives, we we're dealing with um, trying to deal with the way that we purchase things is is very uh, convenient. But I don't know. I mean, 
from my perspective, haven't sales reps always tried to like your good sales reps always tried to remove as much friction as possible. And also businesses themselves, the, the buyers actually introduce a tremendous amount of friction on, 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 on their end as well. Yeah. It, I mean, I think conceptually, yes. Uh, buyers introduce friction because you know, they have some hoops to jump through internally or something like that. Sellers try to remove it the best that they can. I just think that we as leaders haven't really sort of enabled them the way that we, we, we should, right? And so we've given them like training and methodologies for outreach, but we've also overloaded them with a bunch of tools. We've sort of created a, a rigorous process that they have to follow. And a lot of times that process is is not matched with the way that the buyer wants to buy, right? So now you've got your process, the buyer has their buying process, and we're like jumping through like hoops to sort of match each other's. And hopefully at the end, you can come out of it with a sale. And I think that what we're trying to say with frictionless selling is like overinvest in uh, aligning with what the buyer wants, and then make sure you can strip away some of the fat from the sales teams generally, um, where maybe we've been overloading them too much. So. It's still in line with what you're saying, but I just think like coming at it from a slightly different angle. So is, is frictionless selling a, an aspect of the back end? Let's eliminate the friction that's getting in the way of sales productivity, all the numbers about, you know, salespeople only spend 30 some percent of their time selling. Is, is, is it about back end, um, you, you know, process management, making it, making it smoother, more natural? Is it front end changing how salespeople are selling? Is it both? Yeah, I think, well, I think like it's probably a mindset, first of all, right? Um, and, and definitely the strongest implementation of this is gonna be the backend things that you can free up for them. But, you know, one of the elements of this EAT framework, uh, enabling your team, aligning with your buyer and transforming your culture is I think the transforming part is really about like, how do you train your sales team to figure out how to build trust differently and be a little more transparent with the buyer I think those are things that come with when you do buyer alignment and you rethink your process and the way you sell to them. Like, what are the other things you're doing? Like, are you bringing them into your world of how things work? Are you transparent about discounting? Um, are you stepping out of the way when necessary um, and getting out of the way and letting them buy online potentially? So I don't know. I think there's a little bit on the, on the building up trust and changing the relationship dynamic, but the first step is definitely the more tangible backend things that you can sort of control every day. So, so enablement, the enable part is back end. The aligned part is kind of synchronicity, buyer meets seller, transform part is where we become a different, better version of ourselves. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think over time, I think that's where I, I would like to see this go. I think like, first of all, there's a big coaching gap is one thing that we sort of found in a lot of our research, right? Uh, the fun stat that I found is like half of reps feel like they're being coached but 82% of managers say that they're coaching. So there's like some, somebody's lying, right? Uh, and I, I think that's a, the first gap to address. And a lot of people don't know how to address the coaching gap. So we're trying to give a little bit of a playbook to do that. But over time, I think as the role of the salesperson evolves, the manager and, and the leadership has to sort of find a way to shepherd them into that new role. So as an example, if you're gonna sell online, right? you still probably need salespeople to, to generate value and show value to the customer along the way, but maybe you need to change quotas around. Maybe they need to do more coaching. They need to know the product better. It all of a sudden becomes a different job. Like you could blink in five years and some teams have a different sales role. Um, you know, it may take time, but I think like that's the trajectory we're on. 
I'm actually shocked in your research that 50% of sales reps feel like they're being coached. I, I was going to say the same thing. I, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, in my experience, it's got to be far less than that. They didn't say it was good coaching. They didn't say it was good. Right, right, right. right. Okay, there, okay, there we go. All right. And then 83% of managers say that they do a good job of co or they do coaching. I'm like, yeah, uh, that's uh, far from the truth. It might be big. Oh, yeah. A, a, a lot of different places, you, you, a lot of different avenues to take from what you just said. But I'm, I'm curious because you talked about the skills gap and, and you related that to coaching and, and, and things along those lines. What about the resource gap? Um, you know, so I, I, heard, I heard your presentation at Inbound. Yes, I went and I even paid attention. Um, and, and, and I liked what you said about the transform and the coaching part and, and, and putting them in that position. The thing that went through my head is, okay, well, what happens in the first month that that sales manager looks at it and says, oh, shit, we're not going to hit our number this month. Um, and, and frankly, that number was set more because the company decided that, you know, this is what their board wanted as opposed to what was maybe realistic for that resource. Um, and, and so when the sales manager, you know, reacts to there, all the hard work of everything else blows up. How, how do you address that resource gap? So you're saying like the short term, the things we're doing right now can produce short term wins, but this feels like a longer term play. Is that kind of what you mean? No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that what, what I see all the time is companies, uh, well, first off, companies go out and they hire salespeople to grow sales, uh, which I think is a mistake off the bat. Secondly, most companies set a number based upon what their needs are, as opposed to what, what is the condition, like, like a, if you ran a farm, if you ran a farm, the way most sales organizations run their sales organizations, you would be, we would all be starving, right? Because, because we would be pulling the, you know, hey, the root's showing up, pull that thing out right now, right? Yeah. And, and so we're, you know, we, we like, I mean, I, I, from a client standpoint, someone told me, oh, we're, we're, we're a $3 million company. We want to do $10 million next year. I'm like, okay, well, where, you know, where's the demand? Well, it doesn't matter. That's where we need to be because, and I'm like, well, the market doesn't care about that. Right. And, and so I see lots of salespeople and especially sales managers who are the difference between that transformation that are, that are being put in games that they can't win. And until you allocate that resource, you can teach coaching, you can teach that perspective. How do you introduce that into the framework? I didn't know you were throwing these zingers at me. I don't. I, I, that's a that's a good question. That's a good question. That's a game that is is it does fall on the sales leader first of all. I think right, and so you've got to find the right way to balance. Uh, like when you implement something that is going to be a little bit of a longer game, and how much money you're going to spend on it. So I don't know. That's a tricky one. I think maybe that's what you're there for, Doug. I don't know. I don't We're excerpting that. Hold on. We're, I just want you to know we're excerpting that. We're putting that on loop. It's uh, <laughs> homepage. We got it. Is that what the so, genius is there for? I think. Yeah. So, Lou, here's the, here, I mean, it, I, I think also what it, more or less what Doug is saying is like I was in enterprise tech sales for 13 years, primarily high end type equipment. And at the beginning of every quarter, I, mean, I, I had this one executive vice president. I'm not going to name him. He was a great leader, a great coach. He really was. But at the beginning of the quarter, I would argue with him. Like, no, I'm, I, I can't do this revenue. Like, th there's no possible way that I can do this. I don't have insight into 
this $3 million quota for this quarter. Yeah. Well, Mike, I really needed to be in Salesforce. Well, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do it. And the response always was, tell a lie, make it tr come true. Tell a lie in Salesforce and make it come true. And that was the life, I think, a or I think that's a life a lot of salespeople live because in, in, in what I think a lot of people don't understand about sales or sales careers is you're on a 90-day contract. In essence, that is your life. Every, every 90 days you are being reevaluated, you're on a 90-day contract. And that's also why sales reps typically are heavily compensated. That's the scariest part of sales is waking up the first day of the quarter, right? Um, yeah, you know, this is, it's a, that's a hard challenge. That's a hard challenge. So, like, uh, you start the quarter, people are saying, like, what is your path? You're going to do some deal planning. You're saying, what's your path to hitting your number? Um, and you're going to run the same playbook you've been running. You know, I think, like, one thing I would say is that as much as, like, we do, like, I trash a sales process and having a sales process, I do think, like, if you can find a repeatable process that works, you should lean into that and like work the process and show how it's going. And like there is, you can have some scaffolding around your job and coach to like the scaffolding and identify the pain points here and there. Uh, you know, that's how I think you work through it. Like you just have to sort of get to predictability. Uh, if you're individual, if you're going to every individual rep, asking them to sort of squeeze more out of the lemon, um, but you're not showing them like things coming in through the top, and helping them work and identify friction in between, that's always gonna be a problem. So um, this is an age old question. It takes patience um, and it takes a little bit of working the process along the way and maybe working with Doug to figure it out. I feel like it's you, know, you know, sales teams are notoriously well known for their patience. I mean, that is yeah. always considered the strength. Well, this is what- well, so, is the, so is the board, Doug. So yes, is the board. So is the board. <laughs> um, is all friction bad? No, I think some friction is sometimes necessary, right? Like you, like you don't want to sign up bad fit customers just because you smoothed the way and all of a sudden your support team can't handle them or something like that. I think there's a little bit of a, of a filtering that sometimes needs to happen. That's one example of friction that's okay, where you want to slow down and do a little more discovery. So for sure, it's not always bad. The flywheel is a balance, right? Between force and friction. So um, you definitely need both. And I think finding the right balance is key. So, so the thing that scares me when when the mantra is frictionless, eliminate friction. And, and, and frankly, it's probably more about eliminate friction because I, I know where you're coming from. But <laughs> um, the thing that scares me is I'm seeing sales organizations, go-to-market organizations, the whole go-to-market side is, is praying at the altar of efficiency, um, much like, like the manufacturing did in, in the 1980s. And, and ultimately, like the most frictionless um, experience is no salesperson, no person, no human, right? Just, um, and, and it begins to be that I see increasingly that we're treating the human component, which is friction, like it's a bug as opposed to the feature, right? There's, there's a component, nothing great happens without some friction. Um, and, and I think that you've got to eliminate that. I mean, I'm all in on eliminating the, the non-purposeful friction, mm -hmm. the static, the things that get in the way. How do you, how do you, as you're looking, cause you got the same thing, right? You got to, you want to, you want your people to be spending more of their time on those things where that, that human creativity pops out and enables something to happen. How do you differentiate and, and, and build around 
where's the valuable friction that we're going to empower versus the negative friction that we're going to eliminate? Well, so I think you need to have some core principles underneath them, right? Uh, so if we just use this framework, this E framework we talked about, where it's enable your reps, align with your buyers, transform your team with coaching, um, it may be that like there's not a lot of gains to be had by doing the efficiency part and the enablement part, right? And most of the friction you need to reduce is, is like the way you interact with your buyers. And there's some things to change there and sort of cut down. And like only in, let's say, 5% of cases maybe you will sell online and make that a little bit easier. But in the other ones, it's more about easier access to a proposal, easier access to the rep, things like that. So I think if you have some principles underneath it, like we want to align with our buyer, we want to make our reps more efficient, and we want to um, be learning more. You know, you can evaluate sort of how far you are down the path on all those and just say like, you know what, we're not as worried about the holy grail efficiency on the day-to-day -day with reps, but we haven't really sat around the table and thought about our buyers and like really done that. So, so I want to choose based on your principles, I think. I love that. I, 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 that yeah, that, awesome. that, that was, yeah, that was, that was money. In, in, in the same way that you're talking like, you know, HubSpot and many other great companies have your culture code. I think yeah. that, you know, what, what, what's the sales principle? Like, I don't want to call it the culture code because, but I, I think every go to market organization needs to have what, what is their manifesto? Let's get really um, out, out there. The, the thing that's interesting, it, you know, it's funny that you, that you chose the, the, you know, maybe the efficiency thing isn't, um, and, and, and I'll tell you why, and I'm, I'm going to give you some, you, you might want to run this one on me. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you where I am more excited than I've ever been about what you guys are doing. Um, I, I'm an old guy, right? My hair used to be wow. as good as, I know, it's hard. I mean, my hair's not quite as good. That's why I'm always wearing the sales genius cap now, right? Is because I don't have that going for me like I used to. Uh, I remember when I was selling in the 1990s, I remember the top topic in sales and marketing magazine, sales and marketing management magazine. Yes, there used to be a magazine called sales and marketing management magazine, everybody out there. The top topic was Salesforce automation. I mean, we've been talking about Salesforce automation. We've been talking about the e-efficiency, e-enablement for as long as when the first computer came out that had ACT on it, right? Uh, I'm, and I'm telling you, just so you know, I was ACT for DOS. Right. I, I was, I was pre windows act. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about Salesforce automation. And the funny thing is since the 1990s, companies are spending more and more and more money on technology, more and more money on Salesforce automation and every dollar we're spending on Salesforce automation, you can almost track it as every dollar goes up a percentage of time selling goes down. Right. And the thing that was supposed to power us and, you know, and, and take all that, all the worthless stuff away hasn't has actually created more complexity. Well, it was all for the sales leader, right? Yeah, there you go. So now yep. now yes. we're the sales leader, like you need to think differently and pull some of that away. And you know what tools you have? You know what's funny, actually, as you say that, I just had a thought the other day of something that just happened. It was built for the sales leader and IT. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, you had to make IT happy because you couldn't get in there, and we all know the moment you make IT happy, you done away with eliminating the friction. <laughs> Sorry to all my IT friends out there. Um, I, what you guys have built um, for the first time actually has the opportunity to, to deliver on that promise of real Salesforce automate, really being able to automate the predictable so you can humanize the unpredictable. 
right? And, and, and so I actually see that, that enablement piece as like, that's the missing piece in, in 90% of sales organizations that are out there and, and, and the thinking that goes into it so that that can happen. What, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, like if you just get like really tactical about it, when you're the, the, the default motion for a sales team is to go buy Salesforce and then put a whole bunch of other tools on top of it that have sort of come along over time. And that's just like the default of like how you do things. And so, you know, what we're trying to do at HubSpot without being too self-serving is say like, this is an old stack, even though it's people have been calling it like the new stack, like why are we doing it this way? And so it just should be a little bit easier. So like from a software standpoint, I think there's an easier way to do it. I think we can do that. But then like the mindset shift that has to happen is probably more like, as you think about the other phases around coaching and, and aligning with buyers, like you start with mindset there and you map it out and like, yes, there's software that can help. We can help with that. But um, I think we want our software to do it. We want, you know, HubSpot, we're good at marrying software and methodology and have software and thought leadership, right? So that's, that's kind of how we're thinking about bringing this to bear. So I think you're, you're right. And I think we're just trying to like buck the common sort of trend a bit because we think there's a better way. Where do metrics fit in your uh, enable, align, transform frictionless framework? I think I know what you're leading me to in this one, Doug. Me? I think I know what you're leading me to. No. Uh, listen, well, listen, metrics are important. Metrics are critical. I think with each of these phases, I think there's some core underlying metrics you should track to know if it's working, right? Um, how much time is being spent selling and are you improving that by like reducing tools and process? Uh, how are your buyers experiencing um, the, the process with you and is that uh, creating advocates? And then are your reps more productive and not leading as often? Um, those are sort of like really high level ones. And then like, there's just the core metrics that should improve, like uh, attainment and maybe selling velocity, for example, um, among other things. Like I do think like those core metrics should improve. And I, I think those are the foundation of everything. So like you and I have had a few debates about selling velocity um, that I think is really interesting. And so you've got, you've got, you probably want to talk about it because I think it's pretty cool. Um, I think it's important. I'm, I'm, I'm going to circle to that. I promise you. Um, <laughs> You said something that I think um, a lot of people probably miss when you said it. It was when Mike was talking about, you know, the life of the rep, and, you know, and, and, and so forth. And you said, you know, you got to make it predictable, right? And, and I think that, I think that that's the piece that sales measures just about everything from the rear view mirror. Every metric that matters is a rear view metric rear view mirror metric in, in that, you know, we pay lip service to some leading things. Um, most, you know, most sales leaders have, have, have come to realize, yes, you need to make calls. Yes. You need to talk to people. But if we look at it and say, how many calls did you make today? That, that has, that probably doesn't even correlate with, with success, let alone, let alone cause it. And, and so my, my favorite term, um, actually, my favorite term in the world is is the, he's got the nuts or she's got the nuts, which is a poker term. By the way, poker is the greatest uh, terminology. The nuts means you've got the best hand on the table. You should win. Just for those of you I am not being inappropriate is a great poker term. 
Um, but my second favorite poker term is resulting, right? And, and resulting is what happens when you associate the outcome of the decision too closely with the quality of the decision that you made at the time. And so you make, you, you decide how well did you play that hand or that night by how much money did you win or lose? And, and, and by the way, when they say somebody was resulting, that is an insult and it's an explanation for why they lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, so here's a great example of, of resulting. And um, Lou, are you a Patriot? I know you're in Boston. I can't remember if you're from Boston. So are you like a Patriots fan? I sure am. Uh, I knew yeah, I shouldn't have sorry. you on here. Um, you guys, see, that's the problem is you're just a little bit too spoiled. That, I finally figured it out. You're just too spoiled. We paid our dues. We paid our dues. I, I hey, to, You I, guys were so much more likable when you were paying your dues. I agree. I agree. I, I agree. Um, My mom tells me the same thing. So, so, so 2015, Super Bowl. Seattle Seahawks trying to defend their championship. Um, first and 10 on the five-yard line. Um, Marshawn Lynch brings it to the one. 26 seconds left, right? Everyone is saying – Okay, CX has got this one. And everyone's saying, all you got to do is hand the ball off to Lynch. Yeah. And what does Pete Carroll do? What play does Pete Carroll call? The slam. Passes from the one-yard line. <laughs> right? Ma- Malcolm Butler intercepts. The rest is history. Patriots fans are happy. Everyone else in the world is mad. <laughs> and Pete Carroll has gone down as making not just the worst decision in the history of football, they're probably the worst decision in the history of sports, except it wasn't a bad decision. It was actually a really, really good decision. There were 26 seconds left. They had called their last time out. If you hand the ball off and you're tackled, you're, you're running around. I think of the thousand passes, I forget the exact details, but like of the thousand passes that were made inside the five yard line, less than 2% are intercepted. Your, your outcomes are incomplete pass, time stops, you get yeah. to run another play. So, so if you look at it from the standpoint of, by the way, you're surprising the Patriots. You know, it, it, was a, it was a crazy play that clearly sucked from, from the standpoint of, of, of the outcome. But from the quality of the decision, it wasn't a bad decision. And, you know, all the haters stay away. Um, and if you want to re- read the real details about it, there's a great book called Thinking and Bets that talks about this. Um, sales has that problem. We filter everything. How was your month? Right? That, that simply means, did you hit quota or not? Right? Yeah. Um, why do salespeople hate leads from marketers? Well, because marketers turn over sales qualified leads, not sales or, or order ready leads. And so that means that I have to work, right? And if I have to work, then there's risk. And, and if I, you know, and while on one hand, we tell reps, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. What do we measure? We measure closing rate. And closing rate doesn't encourage you to take shots that you might miss. Closing rate says, you know, take the shots that you're confident that you're going to make because we praise the people that have high closing rates. Mm-hmm. We, we measure sales cycle time. How long did it take you to work this deal? Not how much time did it take you, but how long? Um, we measure you know, the, the closed number, which, which encourages, hey, I'd rather take a lot of shots at the end because 
you know, the old phrase, I'd rather be lucky than good. Um, and, and, and so we do all those things and I get it. Like, I, I mean, I know those metrics matter, but they're all, they're all after, and they, they, they encourage this process of resulting. You're good if you hit your number. Baseball used to have this problem too. Right. Right. And, and poker used to have this problem. And, and I'm going to go to baseball for a minute because baseball learned that not only did the metrics that they worshiped, right. And, and we do this in sales, right. You can tell a good salesperson when you see them, just like you can tell a good baseball, right. And, yeah. and, and we worship these metrics. And if someone challenges them, we look at them like they're crazy. Baseball learned that not only did the metrics that they worshiped not actually contribute to their desired outcomes, in most cases, they hindered the outcomes that they wanted because they weren't causal. And, and now we have all these crazy terms like my favorite war. I, I think we need a sales metric on war, war wins over replacement. That would be awesome. Right, sales over replacement. Yeah. Um, batting average balls in play, et cetera. All these things that, that really measure what's the quality of play because you know, at the end of the day, and I think this is true of life, you know, 40% is luck. I, and I don't mean 40% is gambling, right? 40% is circumstances beyond your control, right? That, that, and and we, we kind of all go through slumps. And the question is, when we go through those slumps, what do we learn? That's where the bad habits come in. That's where we fall off, right? And And so how do we so, so I'm going to talk about selling velocity in a second because I do think it would be interesting, but if, if I say so myself, but how do you, um, so I just do a whole lot out there. Obviously we've talked about some of this before and, and, and you've been at some great companies and you've done some really cool things. I've, I've, I've been totally impressed. I'm not saying this just because you're on the show. Um, I've been totally impressed by what, what you've been doing with, um, with the sales product. How do you view that? How do you, how do you, what does the sales world need to do to, to, to be smarter and more enlightened in the future? Well, I think, so I do think that there's not a magic formula that is going to tell you um, proactively that everything is working and on track, right? I think you can certainly get early signs in the sales process. You can certainly get early signs by like micro conversions. What I think we don't do enough of is like, okay, if there is, if we always require um, a VP to be in the process, like how engaged is that person? Like we're not waiting necessarily the opportunities the right way. We also are not taking into account things like what was the buying experience sentiment of, of their past things as an indicator of the future, right? Because like not only do you have to execute the play, but you have to do it in a way that does the trust building and does all those other things. So. I really think I'd love to find a way to incorporate some of the, the traditionally softer things um, into that assessment. And, you know, we, nobody's nailed it yet, but, but, but like, that's kind of where I'm headed. And that's why I think the frictionless thing is more of a mindset and we can try to weave some of that in over time. I don't know. What do you think? What do you guys think? Mike, what's your take? No, well, one, the E framework, I think is, is quite, it's quite brilliant. Um, it brings up a, a product that I've like something that I've kind of always wanted to do. Um, not to kind of go on a side tangent, but like, like you said, just kind of evaluate what's happened in the sales process to, to, to really understand the sentiment of people. 
And quite frankly, the data is there to do it. Um, like something I've always thought about is, hey, why can't I just go analyze all of the email history that I've that I've had um, it, with with every single customer that's ever closed and every customer that has not closed, and read the sentiment of the emails at the different stages of the funnel. Um, and I think you know doing something like that would be. Uh, I mean, look, I was in a conversation yesterday with like our head of machine learning here. I just dropped my water. But, but like there, you know, HubSpot has email data. We've got yeah. data from chat. We've got what happened in the sales process. We've got uh, transcripts from phone calls, like, and, and other people do too. But like, there is a wealth of data there. And I think like figuring out, applying that as we do our, our attribution modeling, like we're doing a lot more with attribution on the marketing side first. But I do think like, you're right there. Like there's sentiment to pick up. And this is like the unexplored, untapped pieces. Um, the only AI that's effectively been applied to sales so far has sort of been in forecasting based on like what we've seen before, sort of. But it doesn't really give you like rep performance, likelihood to close an individual deal. Like we're just scratching the surface now. What, 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 it, what it does, when, when you look at that AI forecasting, what it's doing is it's working a law of large numbers. Right? Oh. It, oh. It's it's playing pool without calling your shots is what I always, I always say. It, it, it'll tell you how many balls will get in the hole if, if you've got enough of them fairly accurately. It just won't be able to tell you which ones. Okay. Um, now, you know, if you look at baseball and, and, and you think of the whole money ball idea, right, you know, oversimplifying what, what the Oakland A's did back when they introduced this, they, they knew they couldn't control wins. So they did a what causes wins assessment which is why I would encourage everybody in the world to do a what causes sales assessment. And then I would say, do a what causes the what causes sales, right? Yeah. But so, so they identified runs, right? And, and this, is why the, this is why the formula breaks down when you go to the playoffs, because runs is based on 162 games and, and, yeah. and what they did. And we actually did something very similar um, when I coached college baseball um, in, in terms of we established, like if we can score this many runs per game, we have, the probability that we're going to, we need to win, we need to win this many games to make the playoffs, so on and so forth. Now we had some games where we scored more than those runs and lost. We had other games where we scored fewer in those games and won. Um, that's the luck part. There's always that variance. And, and I think like what, what you talked about is where I think sales gets itself into trouble. It tries to predict itself as a deterministic output right? It's zero or one. This, this sale will be made. This right. sale won't be made. When, if I'm a baseball player and, and what the analytics have come in to do to make baseball players smarter about how they train is if I do this over time, I increase the likelihood of positive results. Now, you know, Pedro Martinez might have a bad year because the balls that got hit happened to be hit somewhere where no one was. Mm -hmm. right but that doesn't mean that that he's lost any of his talent any of you know he's not on the downslope of of the curve there, there's a great story about um alex ferguson when um who's a um, um i'm going blank you know uh, i think italian football you know yeah. anybody in soccer is now insulting me because i forgot which team he is and he, you know and he talks about the fact that that um he actually sold the player one, you know, his, his top defender because the analytics showed that um, he was on the downtread of the number of tackles. 
And so he jumped all in on that analytics thinking deterministic, oh, I'm going to get rid of him because he's on the downs, downslope of his career. Yeah. So we'll get a high price before. And no, what turned out is he'd gotten that much better that he was in fewer situations where he needed to tackle, right? And yeah. Ferguson says that was the worst decision. So the, the metrics that we should be looking for is how to put it, how to put the probabilities in our favor over time. That's right. One thing I'll add to that though, is that I think the state of sales right now, and the reason this frictionless thing is so important is because we're not doing this, we're not doing the buyer alignment, we're not like really leading in. It's almost as if like baseball hasn't figured out that they can do like a sacrifice fund. Like we don't have those other levers yet because it's not in the toolbox, right? And, and, and I think like we need to get them in the toolbox first and then you can figure out, oh, by the way, like reducing the friction in this particular phase of the sales process is the key sort of insight. But like we wouldn't know now because it's just not even in the toolbox. You know? that, that is interesting. All, that, yeah. That, yeah that, that is smack on. T take it to football. You know, we know if this guy runs 25 times per game. Right. And so when on his first 10 rushes, he's only gained 18 yards. What, what we do in sales is we go, put that guy on a pit. Right. <laughs> right? Right, right, right. And, and, and what they go is, yeah, you know what? He is, um, he's where, like, I'm a John Riggins guy, right? It was like, you know, you look at his first 10 rushes of the game versus his last 10 rushes of the game. Yeah. You know, it's like that, that first play is sometimes setting up what's coming later. That, that, that whole thing was right. Well, on. it's also like, oh, we haven't even read the DB tendencies yet. And we don't know that they can't handle a pick play. And therefore, like, if we start running these, like, it's a new play in the playbook, you know, a new tool in the toolbox. So uh, how, how, would you, how would you feel about this? You guys talked about the 90-day contract in the beginning of the quarter. And in, I, I think there are places, you know, in, in the high-velocity sales world, I think they would kill for a 90-day contract. I think they live on 30-day contracts, right? It, 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 it's that monthly number that, that – and, and the problem is I might – I might need my number on a monthly basis, but buyers don't buy on a, you know, there's no buyer who's saying, wait, we got to get this purchase in. Yeah. You know, they might say it before the end of the year because they want to get a CapEx or, but like, do I buy it on the 30th or the 5th? It doesn't make any difference to the buyer. Right? Unless they're getting what? a discount. That's literally it. Well, yeah. that's what ends up happening. Right. But, exactly. did, right. So, so we end up giving up how many percent for how many days. For, yeah. What, how would you feel if, if instead of looking at a 30-day number or even a quarterly number, if, if the dominant metric became trailing 90 days? So, so that I've got to stay within a performance zone. But, but like when I have a kick-ass month, to expect that I'm going to – like I double my quota in month one. Well, I can't be expected to hit my quota in month two. That, that's not how the world works. Right. And, and so that puts people into, you know, in, 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 into bad habits. Whereas if you looked at it, I believe that if you looked at it as a trailing 90 day number, it would get rid of that crazy, crazy sprint where, you know, so what do you think of, what would you think of that? Just curious. I never shared that with you before. I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, we, we do 30 day quotas here at HubSpot. Um, and I've asked like, why don't we change that? And you build up a set of muscle around it and the incentives are aligned a certain way where if you do miss, but then you outperform, it kind of comes out in the wash. And, and it's probably a pretty big transformation, I would guess. And there's like these corresponding sets of behavior changes that happen that I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, like probably over time, like things normalize and then 
ultimately is probably a better measure. Um, but it'd be pretty, it's pretty disruptive. I don't, I don't, it's interesting. So, so the, the thing that's, you talk about friction and that 30 day number, that there, there have been some interesting studies on that in terms of the internal friction, the distress. It's like the yo-yo diet, right? I mean, I might, it might normalize here, but it doesn't feel like it's normalized. Right, right. Like, I'm, hey, I'm the greatest. And, yeah. And, and they've, they've actually shown some, I'll, I'll find the study and share it with you, where they looked at this on pe people on 30-day numbers, how much of the productivity comes in the last eight days and how little of the productivity comes in the first 10. Mm. And, and it's the sprint to the end, exhaustion, oh my God, I, I made it. Then all of a sudden, you know, and, and so that aspect just kind of creates some really insane. So let's talk about selling velocity. Mike, you ready to talk about selling velocity? Oh yeah. So I, I wanna be clear, you know, in the same way that, that you talked about mind, uh, friction and frictionless being a mindset. Um, I am not saying that closed sales revenue is not an important metric. I'm not saying that closed rate isn't an important metric, though I would say that I would have a, a green zone close rate. If your close rate is above this, mm. it means you're not pushing hard enough. And if it's below that, then you know, it's below this other thing, then we've got this problem. My point is, is that the metric, metrics that we use all heavily weight the end of the process, right? Um, that's where, you know, what gets measured gets done. That's where the spotlight shines. Um, yet, all the research shows the area where, where prospects are most open to influence, where we have our greatest influence, and what ultimately leads to a more predictable sale and post-sale experience are the things that occur much earlier in the process. And we see the numbers that say, buyers are 60% of the way through their journey before they reach out to salespeople. And, and I asked the question, is that, you know, let, let's just say that is true. And there's some reasonable debate about the truth behind that number. But if it is true, is it true because that's what buyers want to do? Or is it true because that's what sellers have taught buyers they have to do, right? And so in the same way, and I would bet that you are, um, that your scorecard, your review has some component of a balanced scorecard methodology to it. Right. Um, and, and just like in baseball, hey, getting hits matters, winning games matters, but there's a balanced scorecard to that. And, and so what I'm, what I'm suggesting, and, and I think it has to be situational, there's not a single, it's not as simple as closing rate, divide this by this and you're done. But I think that, that two things matter. I think how you manage your capacity, constraint theory is extraordinarily important. That's my problem with, um, with sales cycle time. Mm. And, and where I think enablement and alignment and all these things that we're doing with content, they have, it has the opportunity to enable salespeople to do the work that it used to take five people to do for one person video content, right. being able to, you know, all those things. And so, so, so that's one piece. And then the second piece, I'm sorry, I meant to say three pieces. I'll be at four in a second. Mm. The, you okay. know, the second piece is, are we doing the work early that, that creates the environment that, that creates the environment for later opportunities, right. right? So that we're not in that, Oh shit moment. And then movement, right. And, 
most most really good VPs of sales that I talk to tell me they could give a shit about the pipeline number because they know the pipeline number, you know, the, the thing they know when they look at the pipeline, whatever the number, the forecasted number, whatever, they know that that's the number that it won't be. Like have certainty around that. Um, what they care about, what they look at for a rep is what's the motion in the pipeline? Yeah. What's the movement? Thoughts on that? Added, how much is moving? I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and just like quick departure, I do think that all those things that are in the 60% that happened beforehand, that's like the perfect place for sales and marketing to be collaborating. Yeah. Right? Perfectly yeah. around like what the buyer expects and like mapping out who is involved and what they expect and, and trying to scale uh, the things that maybe are the, the most frequently asked questions part of the early stage conversations, put them on your website, et cetera. Anyways, I think that's really important, but, but back to where you're saying like, yes, the, the motion and the movement, it's actually kind of hard. Like is the, there's not really a standard way to measure it, but I always, look, I always looked at like new pipeline being added, um, the sort of uh, health of the existing deals in the pipe, and then like how much seems to be moving and are there like next steps and actions? Like it wasn't a big high velocity team, at that point, but like, I think you're, I think you're right with like the pieces of that. And, and one of the things that I used to look at that I see being missed constantly is not just the movement of the deal through the pipeline, but how many people are being added to the deal record right. in the pipeline, mm -hmm. which got to our, and, and so I'm a rep. So <clears throat> here's a question for both of you. I'm a rep. I've got to say, I'm, I'm talking to you, Lou. And, and I know that you're a VP, well, you're a VP, so that's unfair, but I, <clears throat> so you're just a director now. I'm sorry, I demoted you. That's okay. That's so, okay. so I, you know, I know that, that your VP, um, you know, should be involved, right? We know that we've done that in our training, et cetera. And, but you are engaged, you're all excited. You're like, yeah, let's move forward. Let's move forward. I'm, what do I do? Right. Because every metric says I'm if I push back at you, which is a scary thing to do. Right. And every metric that, that causes me to show up at the next meeting that says, hey, I'm winning or my next coaching session or whatever. Like everything says move it forward, because if I halt it there. Like if I halt it and it works out, I get told, see what he just did. That's exactly what you guys need to do. But if I halt it and you tell me to get lost, <laughs> oh my God, I'm in crazy trouble. <laughs> yep. yep. Right? If I work with sales and marketing, where does that show up? So what I've learned about salespeople is salespeople love to win. Right? So whatever is defined as winning, that is what's going to guide their behavior over anything else. Isn't this the softer part that we don't know how to measure yet? the relationship with the buyer and the trust. Yeah. Like, yeah. What would the play be? Sorry to interrupt, but like the play as a rep would be, let me bring you into my world for a minute. The way that we typically close deals with your kind of company is like, there's a VP involved. Now we're clearly working and like checking off all the boxes, but like, what should I do here? Like, how do we proceed? Like this is the softer squishing trust building. And if we could measure that, damn it, that would be like the core. That would be the key. Well, and, and I'll, and I'll, I'll add, um, two tactics that I've shared in that situation where when you're talking to somebody that is, that you know is not the right level and you're trying to make, cause, cause you know what, there's the one in 10 or the one in 50. Yeah, where you, it, yeah. right? So what I always say is 
if you like if so if you're at the director level and you want to be talking to the VP, you need to ask questions that matter that the that only the VP level could yeah, answer. Can answer. Yeah, exactly. Right. You need to put tools like we use a we use a tool called the diagnostic scorecard. We have so we're like, hey, great, I get it. Could you have your VP just so we can get their perspective because we want you to look like a hero? All of a sudden we get brought in, like the v, the VP goes, Oh, wait a second. This matters to me. Yeah. We use video, right? And and so here's here's an example of where we've brought sales velocity and where we're beginning to identify what we're talking about here. If I make a presentation to you that's 15 minutes. So like we have a play, we have, we have a presentation we call the new playbook. It's a concept that we think is really important so you understand why the new way is is critical. And and we know that when we get that message across, that increases the likelihood that you know that that, that they'll be staying back. Mm -hmm. And so we give that say 15 points, right? But so if I give it to you, it's about a 20 minute presentation. If I give it to you, I tell my boss, hey, I just had a great conversation with Lou. Tell my manager, great conversation with Lou. I delivered the new playbook presentation. He said this, this, and this. My manager goes, good job, Doug. If I say right now, hey, I sent the new playbook video to Lou and he watched it. My manager says, well, why the hell didn't you call somebody else with that time, right? So there's almost that disincentive, right? You get, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. And so what we do is we say that presentation is worth 15 points for each key persona that watches it, right? Because what's the other problem? I want to get you and I want to get your VP. Mm -hmm. Now I got to deal with your calendar. I'm bringing all kinds. You guys introduced the meeting link to get rid of that meeting friction, right? Now we're, now we're back to doodling calendar links, et cetera. Remember that? Remember that? Um, now I send you the video. You watch it on your time. They watch it on their time. We've seen when we do this, all of a sudden, five other people watch it. We didn't even know they were there. Right. It turns out the VP says, hey, you know, and now I get 15 points per view. So I can give it to you if I'm the control freak and I can give it to you. Or would I be better off using that half hour period of that half hour block of time as a salesperson to come up with a way to get five people to watch that video? And now instead of the manager being in this place to, to have the argument around, you did make the sale, you didn't make the sale, you did advance it, you didn't advance it. There, there, there's a point calibration system, <laughs> right? That begins to say, hey, I got 75 points. Yeah. Right. Five people watch it. I got 75 points. Um, now we might learn later that that didn't have the impact that we thought it was going to have, in which case we go, wait, we need to change that point value. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, that's where AI becomes totally right. Mm -hmm. That type of analytic, I think that the analytic and the gamification of it so that there is alignment around there begins to say, um, you know, did I have a good at bat? We can break that at bat down, right? And and fans go, why is that guy still hitting the ball? You know, why why is he still playing? He hasn't gotten a base hit in five games, and it turns out, um, yeah, but he's third in the league for you know, you know how hard he's hitting the ball at that time, mm -hmm. which right, which means you stick with it. He's actually doing what he's supposed to do. Yeah, I, I think that's we talk about a line. I, I think that is. A, a missing piece that then puts you in that position to have transformation 
Because now the sales manager can talk to the VP of sales to say, look, I hit, you know, <clears throat> our velocity is going up. We're doing more of the right things. Hey, we're not getting the lead volume that we need, or hey, we're not getting the quality that we need. That, you know, yeah. it, it begins to normalize that conversation. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Mike, I'll let you go. I've been talking too much. <laughs> You're the guest, man. All right, I'll talk. Um, I think that's interesting. Yeah, the first thing I thought was like, wow, well, you probably identified when you mapped out sort of the buyer expectations that this is the kind of thing that has leverage and is necessary to get people sort of thinking about things the way you want. And so now you've had a, you have a new tool in the toolbox. It's aligned with buyer expectations. You're delivering it in a way, maybe it's video, that is sort of friendlier and more frictionless. And it feels like that's checking the boxes. So what I like that you've done here, Doug, is like you're saying, um, I, I've mapped things out and I'm assigning points to key leverage areas and that's how you should spend your time. So it's almost like this is a really neat interpretation or, or way to sort of meld this frictionless selling framework with um, like a day-to-day -day scoreboard almost and like rep efficacy. I think it's super interesting. And, and, and I'll tell you, as we've begun to test some of the early things out, what, what has also, I didn't expect this, but it makes all the sense in hindsight. The conversations at the senior level as you start going to say what should get points and how many points are they worth, all of a sudden executives begin to talk. We, we, we had one situation where, you know, the, the head of engineering and they were an engineering company was never really participated in our go to market strategy conversations, right? Big surprise there. The VP of sales says, yeah, I think that should be 15 points. That should be five points. All of a sudden, like the head of engineering went from being asleep to what the fuck are you like, literally quote, what the fuck are you talking about? right? If that's worth 15 points, there's no way this is worth five points, right? right? They, they started going back and forth. They go, well, Doug, what do you think it should be worth? I said, I have no idea, but this is the conversation you guys should have been having for like maybe the last year. And, and so it begins to get everybody on, like it, once there's a number, and that's why close sales becomes the, the you know, what we worked about. Once there's a yeah, number, you can't argue. Measure. Yeah, it's the easiest thing to measure though. Right. So so when so like when we talk about a line, like to me, that's the place where until that's there, we you know, we talk about one source of truth for data. What's the one source of truth for performance? Mm -hmm. Right. Because how many times does a rep not hit a number and, and they're told, you know, you get, you know, we're we're a strike three, we're a strike three place, right? You can miss three numbers, but then that person doesn't hit the number for the third time they're the stud rep and it's like, well, you know, they had a this, they had a that or that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, as much as we say, we're just right. Now it begins to be, wait a second, we can actually look where is that underlying component? What is contributing to that? So, yeah. Artie, I know we've used up a lot of your time, Lou. This has been awesome. I'd love to have you on again. What, it, it, if you're running a sales team right now and you're hearing and you're reading about frictionless selling and you're like, Oh my God, how do I get from, um, I, two years ago, I got my sales team off of spreadsheets. Right. What, what's your first action advice to them? Um, okay. So I think, well, like we have some fun free resources at frictionlessselling.com. You can go sort of do these lightweight audits of like, where you stand, like how can you measure the rep efficacy? How can you think about buyer alignment and do a simple exercise? Um, how can, like, what does a coaching grid actually look like? So I would say like, look at those and try to benchmark yourself. And then like more generally for your career, 
Like, do you, how do you imagine standing out, right? When you go to your interview for the CRO role at the next company, like, do you want to say like, well, we increased activity volume and like PPR for reps went up. Or do you say like, we really transformed the business. Like we got marketing and sales on the same side of the table. We like extremely oriented around our buyer and here's what happened. Like we have new metrics people never thought of. Like, I think this is a career optimizing play as well and something you should add to the toolkit. So you can start small, go to that website um, and just sort of think about how it can sort of enhance and augment like what you're doing as a sales leader right now. I didn't even know about that website. How about that? I did. Yeah, I didn't know either. I'll be spending a little bit of time as soon as we get all finished. It's lightweight, but we're adding to it. The basic things are there. And so like you could go run a half day workshop with the team or something like that, or or, like use your next sales kickoff and do a couple of these exercises. I think it'll it'll be kind of neat for you. And and it plugged right into Brian's keynote on experience disruption. You you can say, you know what? And, And tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth. You can say, we've changed how we sell. That's right. That's right. Lou, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Um, we'll keep it going. Um, I, I, I had my nice hat on tonight as you are today, as, as you can tell. But, yes, Lou, thank you so much. This is, this was quite enlightening. And again, the, the, the EAT framework is, uh, is, is a very interesting. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Mike, but I am full. I have eaten Ooh. enough. Yes. Well, you know, the service hub the service methodology is egg, eat right? Egg. So eat egg and we need the marketing team to come up with something good for the marketing ones. So it could be like something. Spam, uh, eat egg and spam. Yeah, exactly. We're going to eat with, yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> pig eat egg. We need P-I-G, pig eat right. egg, right? In right. The, that, that, that gets into a, co- a commitment parable. Anyways, until next time, thanks for joining us on the Black Line Podcast.